Good afternoon. Yep, and that's good. That's the title up there. I just wanted to make sure we look at that. The God with whom we have to do, which is kind of what Randy was touching on a little bit here. What I was <clears throat> planning to do today, I think the Lord's will for me is that uh, many of you have been here, I think the last six or so weeks or more, that we've gone through this sermon series of the tulip, you know, everyone knows what I'm talking about. Maybe you're visiting for the first time, you didn't go through any of those sermons. <clears throat> but tulip represents the what is called the Calvinistic uh, doctrines of grace. Although I don't like the word Calvinistic or any title because to me it's just Bible. It's either the verses are there or they're not there. Uh, to me, Calvinism, or when I started to understand Reformed doctrines, or I should say, just it's just more scriptures that I was not aware of so much. I didn't focus on them. What I was taught was things uh, focused on other issues. To the you know to to the ignoring some of these others. So when I started to read these passages of Reformed doctrine, it was like they started to come alive again. And before they would just go you know, right over my head. You know, hard verses like Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, and right over my head because that's a that's like why is that there in the Bible? Well, <clears throat> because we weren't taught how to see more than you know the fullness of the of the gospel and who God is. So that's what I want to do is kind of reinforce. The ideas of uh, what we believe is scripture, we call it doctrines of grace, reformed theology, or Calvinism. Again, I don't like the titles, but that's, you're either saved or you're unsaved, right? So that's kind of what we want to focus on today as well. You know, when people are reading scripture, you, you want to remember, like, we don't just, some people maybe read their devotion, put their bookmark in, and put it away. And they did their duty, you know, they read the scripture for the day. What we want to do is focus, and not only focus on it, but ask yourself, what does this show me about the Lord? It's not just, and, and I say this with obviously respect to the Word of God. The Word of God, the Scriptures point us to God. Someone once said, <clears throat> the saying kind of stuck with me. He said, it's not just the book of the Lord we want to know, but the Lord of the book. Because the book of the Lord is from the Lord of the book, and he wants us to know the Lord of the book, as well as the very words in the scriptures. So this morning what we want to do is look at God, specifically God the Father, um, to, to see what is God like. And not talking about, of course, Godhead is three, but talking about the person of God the Father and his, his ways. His No one knows everything about God. I don't claim to know everything about God. Uh, but to see maybe more of an angle or a, like a diamond when you shine it on different, it shows different lights that you can see more of who God the Father is like. Some of it may be old news to you. Some of it may be new. And hopefully it encourages you and reinforces some of the things you already uh, believe. But it's a, I think it's, it's timely to help to go back and look at the past six or so weeks and uh, what was learned through that. Um, the th I think the thing that would help the most, when you think about TULIP and you know, you all know a tulip, right? Everybody can know those. So a total depravity. Uh, okay, somebody help me. Good. Right? Limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So tulip there sounds like, what is that about? But this, this, passage, this passage and studies we're going to do today, you'll see maybe all of the tulip in there. I'm not going to point out necessarily what's the T, what's the U, what's the L. 
the eye. But you may, you may notice yourself, if you're listening, you may say, oh, I can see how that relates to the T or the depravity of man, limited autonomy. I think you'll see some of these things come out. But the first thing, maybe the most important thing we're going to put as an anchor for the sermon of the God with whom we have to do is this. I think where most people have trouble, many Christians you may know, have trouble with Calvinism or doctrines of grace, is one thing they forget. They, they've heard it. Uh, again, they, they know it or they may attest to it, but they don't really understand it is this. The truth that God is a king. That's very, very key to understanding his person, his character, his, his ways, and what he's like. And that includes, obviously, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is also king, king of kings. Uh, Pilate asked him, are you a king? You know, and Jesus said, I have a kingdom, but it's not of this world. Uh, we know that God is king. Obviously, it points it out to us in some, several verses. Psalm 93 said, the Lord reigns. He is robed in, ra- in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity, his throne. In, in Psalm 2, which you may know, uh, it talks about the kings of the earth conspiring against the true God. And it says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So the Lord is enthroned and he has installed his king, King Jesus, on his holy mountain. So he appoints what he, what, who he wants and when he wants. Think about a king on the earth. And I know this is just a kind of a contrast, but I believe it, it's, it has truth to it. What do we know about kings on the earth, especially days of Jesus and before in the days of the Old Testament, even medieval days and dark ages? Kings do what kings want to do. Kings are sovereign. Kings have a will. Kings have pleasure. Kings have a plan. Kings have a purpose. Kings can destroy the enemy. Kings can uh, put to death those who rival against them. We know in the Old Testament we see that. A king's word is law. And this is similar to God the Father. He is a king. And this is what you'll want to remember when it comes to reading Scripture. Look through the, when you, when you read Scripture, always remember the Lord. Of course, he's Savior. Of course, he's love to his people. But he's also a sovereign king. And his, he will not be questioned. He does not ask for our vote. God is not a democracy. I remember when I was uh, ministering in West Virginia, R.C. Sproul said, he said, God is not a democracy, he's a monarchy. And boy, that really rang a bell. We don't take votes on what we want to do here, God. He's, he's a king, he's a monarchy, he has said the word, it's established. And Isaiah even says that he had a vision of God enthroned and his, the train of his robe was so long and he sat enthroned holy and high. And that's what God is, he's king. So when you think about tulip. And these things that are harsh and total depravity, limited atonement, things like that. Just remember this, that God has the right to do as he wishes. And that will not be taken from him. And he does not apologize for it. And he does not try to uh, satisfy us with any reasoning. He commands we obey him. And the world, the, even the world around us, the entire, all the, the Bible says in the book of Acts that the nations and the boundaries are set in motion by God in the book of Acts. Their boundaries are set. Their times are set. The United States was made a nation to become a great empire in the minds of God. China's rise, Russia's fall, and right, whatever it is, kings are known by God. The, king, the hearts of the king are in his hands. He's sovereign 
over the whole earth. Not just us, his people, but the entire plan of the earth. So remember, it's his pleasures. Uh, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, if you would turn there, I'm going to look at a few passages. And when you're thinking of this, as we're reading these passages, think of these things. That God has a right to predestine. God has pleasure. God has purpose. God has plans. He's a king and he, and he deserves praise as king as well. And you'll see this coming out. Ephesians 1, and let's begin with uh, verse 3. But again, think of God our Father, God the Father, as king. But how beautiful his ways are, and how it originates in him, and we are blessed. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. But notice verse 4. He chose us. See that? King. He chose us. We didn't choose him at first. We chose him after he gave us faith to believe. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us. See that? He predestined us for adoption to sonship. We're, we're his sons, adopted sons, through Jesus Christ. In accordance with what? My pleasure, his pleasure, and will. His pleasure, his will. This is what he wanted to do. In verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Right? To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. He has freely given us. Verse 7, in him, we, this is through Christ, we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he, God the King, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Look at that. The king has decided what he wanted to do. And it says, he made known the mystery of his will, which we wouldn't have known unless he revealed it, <clears throat> according to his pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And if you skip down to verse 11, in him we were also chosen, Christ, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will, his will, conformity of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Now go a little further down in chapter 1 to verse 17, and this is Paul's wish for them. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, the King that I'm talking about today, the one, the God with whom we have to do. This is the one we have to do. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit, the, the, the capital S, of wisdom and revelation. Why? That you may know him better. To know what God is like. To know how he thinks. What's his plans? What's his character like? This is what's missed by many Christians today. Why they cannot accept the whole idea of God's sovereignty, of, of Christ dying for his church, for his people, uh, irresistible grace. They cannot accept it and understand it because they don't really know him. They may know passages of scripture. I think of it like the way I was taught in, in Christianity, almost like a wagon wheel, right? A lot of spokes, but no rim connecting it all together. So where it connects together is knowing God is king, and he's a good king. He's not a bad king like we know kings can be. 
He, he's very, he's, he's authoritarian as king, but he's loving to his people, and he, and, he, and he demands these things from us. He says here, I pray in verse 18, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. You may know the hope to which he called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance is his whole, in his holy people and his uncomfortably great power for us who believe. So again, this is all granted to us, and Paul wants us to know him better. Now, if you go to Romans 9, this is a very powerful chapter you, you may know of. Romans chapter 9, I'm not going to go over the, all the de- obviously detail. It's such a powerful, uh, beautiful chapter, but I just want to highlight some things pertaining to God being king and having a sovereign will, and he has the right to do what he wants. Just like a, uh, even our presidents get to pick who their cabinet is. They get to pick who they want to be in this role, in this office. Well, a king does the same thing, right? When a king is, is brought to King Charles over to England, if you've read anything about him, he's doing what he wants to do. He's limited. He's not fully like the way we think of a king in the olden days. But still, he's allowed his king to do as he wishes. And this is the same with God. Can't, he, can't God pick who he wants? Can't God reject who he doesn't want in his roles? Can't God uh, decide when he wants things to happen? Why can't he do that? My question to those who, who reject the sovereignty of God is, what is your problem with that? He's God. He's king. Of course he has the right to do these things. And just if you were king, you would have the right uh, to do those things which you desired as well. The good news is about our God, our king, again, is that he's fair. Now, we may not agree with it. That's part of the problem with Romans 9. From a human standpoint, even, there's questions. But again, we have to remember, we're, we don't understand things the way God does. But if you go to Romans chapter 9, uh, he points out, first of all, in verse 6, that he's talking about the, the Jews versus uh, Israel, Israel's forefathers and being part of God's plan. But again, if this is not um, 100% guaranteed for them just because the Israelites. Even he says in verse 6, It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That's interesting. Not just by your bloodline, your physical blood. Not, nor because they're his descendants, as they are Abraham, all Abraham's children, on contrary, it is through Isaac your offspring shall be reckoned, or it is Isaac that your seed shall be called, meaning spiritual seed, right? Born from above, that's us, children of God. We, we are not, I am not Jewish by my blood nature, so to speak, but I am Abraham's seed by faith. And that's what you are too if you know Jesus Christ today. You're Abraham's seed. In Isaac, your seed shall be called, not a bloodline. There was a time for a bloodline leading up to the birth of the Messiah, once Messiah comes, it is a, is a bloodline or of, of the blood of Christ, Abraham's offspring. He said, it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. This promise started uh, at the time he said, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, listen, this is amazing in verse 10, talking about election. This is what people might have trouble with, but here it is in the scripture. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time. By our father Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done, had done anything good or bad. So it's even telling us nothing had happened to make one get picked over the other. You see, he says before either had done good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand. God's purpose in election is the point. The king's picking his plan. It's not about, it's not about Esau and Jacob being one's better than the other. You see what I'm saying? Per per se, we might think. He says in verse 12, not by works, but by him who calls. This is God calling. 
Not works, God calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. People have trouble with that. God, hate Esau? Let me remind you too that the word hate in the original doesn't mean the way we think of hate. When, unfortunately, when we say hate, we mean bad things. We mean hate. The word here in the original for hate means to reject. And it, it just means that God has not t- taken, just like in the days of David with his, his dad Jesse and the prophet came and said, God has rejected him. The Lord told the prophet, I've rejected him. That's the same idea. I've, that's not the one I want, is all he's saying. What shall we say then in verse 14? Is God unjust? Not at all. Well, it sounds like he's unjust to our average person on the street today, our man on the street. What shall we say is God unjust? He said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Does, it does not, therefore, depend, verse 16, on desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Imagine that. It doesn't depend on human desire, will, or effort, but God's mercy alone decides this. Who he wants to call, who he wants to reject. Do you see that? He's a king, remember. For the scripture says to Pharaoh in verse 17, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and my name might be proclaimed on the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Sounds cruel to the to us as regular, regular old human beings. He hardens people? He, he's a king. And he, he has a plan and a purpose and a will and a mystery and a pleasure. And he's doing all these things according to his desire, which he has the right to do. And he has the authority to do as well. So then in verse 19, this is where I, I would like Paul, I had a quick, he has a little question to someone. Well, one of you will say to me, and this is what people will ask, and I get it as a human. Why does God still blame us? Who is able to resist his will? And I would say absolutely. That's a great question coming from from a man, from us. He says in another version, if no one can resist his will, why does he find fault? Absolutely great question. You know what the answer is? God doesn't explain himself at all. You know what Paul says? Then who are you, he says, a human being? Who are you that you should talk back to God? Wow. It doesn't make sense. You may not like it, but you can't vote on it. You can't get rid of it. You can tear out your Bible. It won't matter. He says, who are you to talk back to God? Then he has a simple illustration from the book of Jeremiah. Shall, shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make of the same lump of clay some pottery, some for special purposes, some for common use? In other words, funny, we were listening to a man the other day, and he was saying, I believe God made... God gifted some men to be this and to sing and some to be plumbers and some to be this and that. I, 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 that's possibly true. God knows what the world needs. God knows exactly who needs what talent, what abilities to do, to build skyscrapers, to, to, to be a simple job, to be complex. He knows these things. He knows the time of them. And then here's an answer to David's cry. Remember when David used to say, in the Psalms, and I used to, I used to kind of whine along with him, and God bless him. And he said, "Why do you let the wicked prosper? Why?" Do you know there's a great answer coming up for that? And David didn't know it then, but maybe he knows it now. But we can learn from it. So there's two types of people, he says here. 
the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy prepared for blessing. So he says in verse 22, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, did what? Bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. Why would he do that if they're under wrath? Why would he bear with great patience these people who are the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why? To help you be encouraged who's a vessel of mercy. Read on. He says, what if he did, in verse 23, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us whom he called not only the Jews but the Gentiles. Imagine that. God... If David knew, his answer would have been, David, the reason why God bears with the wicked and allows the wicked to go unpunished for so long is because God wants you to see that if he'll bear with them and not strike the wicked who he's going to punish and are under his wrath, then he'll, he'll, he'll put up with them, not because he agrees with it, but he'll be patient with them to show you how merciful he is to you as his child, how much more so. Is his mercy towards you, the vessel of mercy. Amen? And that's what a good king he is. He, people think the wicked are getting away with it. No. He bears with them to show you if God is that patient with them who he has put under wrath, how much more is his mercy towards me who he's called and loved from the foundation of the world. There's no end to it, you see. There's no end to the mercy and the love. So he says here the vessels of wrath, vessels of Mercy, and I, I had this question years ago to myself. I, I used to say, you know, I hear a lot in the Bible that always talks about wicked, righteous, right? Unrighteous, righteous. Uh, even John, the Apostle John, this is how we know who the children of God are and the children of the devil. And I'm like, that's it? There's either a child of God or a child of the devil. There's no children of the gray. I like to say that. No children of the gray. There's no hybrids. There's children of God or children of the devil. Jesus talks, Paul talks about the sons of disobedience, where, which we used to be. Uh, Paul, Paul talk, Jesus talks about the sons of light versus the sons of this age. You remember? Um, who are the wicked? Who are the wicked and who are the righteous? If I go downtown uh, Boston or something and I'm walking around, I'm looking around, who, well, who's the wicked, who's the righteous? You know, in paintings in the medieval times, you know how you used to know who the, who the righteous were? A big halo painted over their head. Remember that? That's how you knew who the good guy was. He had the halo. But we don't have a halo painted on our heads. And, and, and those who are not his don't have anything written on them that we can see. So how do we know the wicked from the righteous? How do we know the evil from the good, the ungodly from the godly, the children of wrath from those vessels of mercy? How, how can we know uh, the difference? Even Jesus said in his time, here's the problem. We were all children of wrath. That's what's hard to take. We were all, we're not waiting to get under the pearly gates. We were condemned already from birth. We were condemned, the Bible says. Paul says uh, about the, the law condemned them. It, it, it's, it's their punishment for all of us. We used to walk in the ways. Paul said we were children of wrath just as they are. We were the same thing. So who were the wicked? Jesus said, all of you are wicked. How could he say that? The Pharisees, who were the most religious people, people going, right? The Pharisees, they carried the, they memorized scripture. They, 
They were the most holy of men. You know what Jesus called them? Their father was the devil. He said, you're sons of your father, the devil. What, a, what an odd thing to say to these men. Can you imagine the people around them saying, did he just say what I thought he said? And how about Jesus when he says to these poor fathers, I was, I'm going to go back now to uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew for a couple of passages. If you want to go to Matthew 7, uh, Jesus is speaking to, these, to the people, and he's talking about himself, but he compares him to... to to what they really are. He says in, in Matthew 7, verse 9, which of you, he's talking to the fathers and mothers are there too, but he's talking to fathers, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? So the fathers are all proud of themselves, and they're like, yeah, I, I would never do that. I would never give my son a stone when he asks for a piece of bread. I would never give my son a snake when he asks for a fish. So they feel pretty good about themselves. You know what Jesus says? If you then who are evil, what a shock. What a, They could take it as an insult. You are evil, and you know how to give good gifts to your children. Then how much more God will give his spirit to them that ask? He called them evil, and he's not wrong. We're all evil when, when we begin, coming from the womb, right? The sin of Adam passed on. By one man's act of rebellion or sin, all became sinners. So in another passage, uh, Jesus does call them that. He says, you're, you're, the Pharisees were evil. He says, your father is the devil. Another thing is, even when the Pharisees said something uh, good, he said to the Pharisees, listen to what he says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad. In other words, act what you are. Don't fake good and he says, be what you really are, Pharisees. He says, make a tree good and make a tree bad. Its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. Then he says this, which is quite fascinating. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? What he was saying was, even when they said something good, it was evil to them. You see what I'm saying? Their hearts were evil. So even when the wicked say good things... To God, he sees it as evil. It may be something good they're saying, and it may be helpful, but in their heart, they are still wicked. Until we are pronounced not guilty, until we are covered with blood of Christ, that, that is why Christ is so important, because no man could ever equal the sin debt. We never could. We could never arrive at our... Like to be saved by works is so foolish because so many, this is countless, and, and the fact that we sin once, we're guilty, and we're born in sin. But in God's grace, he has, he has forgiven those who he's called out from the world. But before even that, it tells us not only is it so bad for those who don't know him and the one that the king has seemed to reject, but it's even, he tells us it's, it's hidden from them in some ways. Jesus said that when he told parables, you remember Peter said to Jesus, why do you speak to the people in parables? And most of most Christians would say, because they're great stories and they're easy to remember and they're, they're fantastic. Jesus said, no, I tell them parables so that it's hidden from them. What? He says, I speak to them in parables. He said, to you, disciples, it is given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them outside, it is hidden. Those who don't want to hear those whose ears are blocked, those who don't care. 
He said, to them it is hidden. He goes, lest they turn and they hear with their ears and see with their eyes and they be converted. Well, did Isaiah save this people? You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Because God must be the one to turn the heart. He must be the one to give us life. And that's what he did with you today. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord, he's given you a new heart. And he's given you, even though right now we see our, our eyes see through glass darkly, we do see. Before it was lights out, right? It was just darkness. And I, I remember my days of darkness. You do too, probably. Can you remember before you were saved? Oblivious. There was nothing in you. You were dead in trespasses and sin. That's what the Bible says. You know, somebody, uh, Florence Nightingale was, what, a famous nurse. Well, she began and really um, turned nursing into the great profession that it is. But Florence Nightingale was a very angry person at Calvinism. She did not like Calvinism at all, and she saw it as something vile and really scripture. She said this. She said, if I believed in Calvin's God, whose good pleasure... It was to predestinate many to eternal damnation. I surely would not love him. I would never try to conciliate him, mean to please him. But what Florence Nightingale didn't understand was she doesn't have a right view of who God was. She doesn't understand some of the things I've been telling you this morning. She didn't read the scriptures or she didn't read to know. She might read scriptures, but she didn't really care to know what they were saying and who he really is. God says himself, he, it's not his good pleasure to predestinate people to eternal damnation. He says in Ezekiel 33:11, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I thought that's so kind of God to be merciful to say that. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It is they that bring themselves unto these things. Uh, but obviously Florence Nightingale seeing God, and I find when I talk to people about you know, the Reformed doctrines, doctrines of grace. I get a lot of like, you're, bad, you're evil. You guys believe that? You're a bad people. You ever get that? Because we don't love. Uh, we're, we're, bad, we're mean and angry and, and just don't care about people. And that's so far from the truth, obviously. We just know who the living God is. We know who the king is. And we know, and I know, I don't have a problem with God being sovereign. I don't. I don't have a problem with God's God things God does. Even though we, we question things, like we were just reading in Romans 9, I'm, I, just, I believe what he does is right. I believe he's, even though I don't get it, and, my, and I'm limited, right? He's not. So I, must, I trust him for what he says. And I trust Jesus for what he says. And Jesus, don't forget, he, he of all people is coming back to judge this world, isn't he? He's coming back. He, he said he gave a parable about himself. This is Jesus talking. The world doesn't like to see this, this angle of Jesus, but it's true because he's, he's all, all God and all man, and he, he knows exactly what he's come to say from his father. But he gave a parable story, and he said, it was about himself, and he said, a man went to a far country to be made king. This is him. He's come. He went to a far country to become king. The people said, we don't want him to be king over us. Remember that? But I love it. It says, he, he was made king, however. Doesn't matter. Psalm 2, he was made king. He was installed king. But the Jews said at the time, we don't want this man to be king. And sure enough, they thought getting rid of him on the cross, that would be the end of him, and they'd be done with his teaching. But instead, he said he was made king, however. And it says after a long time, he came back to take his kingdom. 
That's referring to Jesus coming again. But you know what he says? He comes to become installed fully as king, although he's king now, but he hasn't been uh, installed in that day yet, his coming, fully king, and his kingdom come. He said, now take those who did not want me to be king and bring them here and slay them in front of me. Wow. Jesus said that? Yeah, Jesus said that. And that's what he's going to do when he returns. King of kings, Lord of lords, on the great horse that the fire comes out, destroys the enemies of God, judges men. He's told us that do not fear him. You remember who can only kill the body. Fear him who cast body and soul into hell. Fear him. So this is the God with whom we have to do. This is who we're dealing with. But praise God, by the grace you've been shown, you are free. You're adopted children. You're adopted sons. And in the Roman days, an adopted son had more rights than a biological son. An adopted son could never be gotten rid of. He, he, was, he was to stay as heir. And that's us. Adopted children in the days of the Bible had more safety and more power than biological sons themselves. This is what Paul understood. So how, how does it work? How does it work as, as we come to conclusion here? In John chapter 6, I want us to see a passage which shows us side by side the sovereignty of God with the will of man to believe. This is always a, a, a hard part to understand. The will of God and the will of man come together to become saved in faith through Jesus Christ. In John 6, verse 39, actually, let's start with verse 35. John 6, 35, Jesus said this, talking about himself as the bread of life. He said, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Okay, sounds like men are free. But as I told you, you have seen me, and you still do not believe. And he says this in verse 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me. You see where we came from first? From the Father. We were his. He gave, the Lord, the, God the Father gave the bride to his son to become a betrothed when he came the first time. We are betrothed. We are engaged to Jesus right now. That's our status. But we're married. We cannot be put away. In Jewish day, when you were betrothed, you couldn't break up unless you were divorced. So our engagement to him is solid. It's eternal. But he says, who gave us to him? The Father. He says, they were yours, and you gave them to me, you see. It's not an accident. He says, in verse 37, all those the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, remember, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus said, I always do what pleases the Father, his king, his father. He said in verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me. What's God's will? What's the Father's will? That I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise him up at the last day. Amen to that, right? He will not lose you. He, he will not lose me. Jesus said, all things are in my Father's hand and in my hand, and no one shall pluck them from my hand. No one, nothing can take you from his hand. He said, I shall lose none of those he has given me. In verse 40, but this is where the two come together. For this, my Father's will is this, that everyone who looks to the Son 
believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. He just repeated the phrase, raise him up at the last day. You see what he said in verse 39? All that he has given me, I will raise up the last day. And all who believe in me, your part in faith, I will raise him up the last day. It's the same, same situation. He gives you to his son. You believe in his son by faith. Ephesians 2, we'll see that in a second. Ephesians 2, by grace you've been saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man would want to boast about it, which people do try to boast. But you see there, God's will combined with your belief. It works as he planned. As a matter of fact, if you'd go to Ephesians 2, why were we so blessed? Because we were chosen in him from the foundation of the world. You were chosen in him. There was neither good in you that he foresaw. I, I didn't know I was going to be born. Can you believe? I go back to a time that I wasn't born. I can't believe I was never here, but there was a time I was never here as you. But you were known before eternity passed. You were known before the earth was even created by God. But Ephesians 2.1 tells us who we were as well as who the, those in the world are today. He says, as for you, Ephesians, believers, he said, you were dead in transgressions and sin. You were dead. I was dead. You were dead. We were all, we're all dead spiritually. He goes, when you used to live and when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom, who's the king today of the, of the world? Jesus even calls him, right? This is, Satan was right when he said, all authority is given to me and I have authority to give it who I want to. If you bow down and worship me, this will be all yours. That's his kingdom. It's a temporary earthly kingdom. Jesus said, this is his hour when darkness reigns. This is the hour of the devil. His death and crucifixion. But he says here, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. Who are the disobedient? This is what we talked about, the ungodly, those who are called wicked, the, the sons of the age, uh, the, right, the unrighteous. Uh, all these names, children of God, children of the devil, sheep, and the goats. These are the goats. You know, there's no hybrid. There's no such thing as a, a shoat or a geep. There's no none of that. And a goat can't become a sheep, and a sheep can't become a goat. It's just not, not in God's kingdom it doesn't work like that. And he says here, the spirit not working, that those who are disobedient, all of us lived among them, verse 3, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the, cra the cravings of the flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Amen. He said, but, here's the big turn from his choosing you before the foundation. But because of his great love for us, his elect, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. The word there, made us alive, is, is the whole word about females giving birth from the womb. And remember when Jesus said, you must be born from above, birthed from above. You, like he said to uh, Nicodemus, birthed from above, spiritually born. He gets, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? You know, be born from above. And God says he does it through his great love and his richness of mercy made us alive. I didn't get myself alive. He made me alive, and he made you alive. And then he says, it is grace you've been saved, and 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's more good news. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. And how, how good is this love? How, how secure? We talked about it here. But just to conclude with this passage in Romans chapter 8. He says, I am convinced. This is for you as his, his child, his adopted son or daughter. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons nor the present nor the future nor any powers or height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the God with whom we have to do. So when I tell people about the Lord now, when I was younger and I tell people about the Lord, I would feel so like so anxious, you know, if they don't believe. They're... I had a I had a man in our church once came to me and he said, I feel so terrible. This my neighbor is an older man and I've witnessed to him and the other day he was riding his mower and I didn't talk to him about the Lord and he died and and it's my fault. And I tried to say to him I said, Lord help me to know what to say to him and it came to me and said Ellen you didn't you don't know that's all I could tell him at the time I said you don't know if he was Lord's the Lord's elect we don't know that we don't know if he was chosen he must not have been of the Lord and and I don't know if that helped him at the time but I think about it when I talk to people about the Lord now I'm I'm free because I just tell them the way it is I can tell them the Lord I can declare the Lord and I do try to say it the best I can like you do, but I'm not gonna. I can't go around and carry the burden. It's not my burden to carry. You're a messenger. That's what you are. You're a herald. That's what that's what gospel means. It means a heralding. It's almost like I used to imagine like a man on a horse in the old days, and the dam was upstream, and it was going to break at any time. So he took his horse and rode down to the village below, and he said, "Hear ye, hear ye! The dam is about to break." And then he takes off. <laughs> That's what you're to do. Hear ye, hear ye. There's a God whom we have to do with, and he's a king, and he does what he wants to do, and he's ordered you and commanded you to come to his son. Goodbye. You know, you get on your horse and you leave. Because <laughs> you are a herald. But when you, again, when you talk to the Lord, remember, it's his prerogative. He is the king, and, and don't be afraid. And I know it's heartbreaking. It surely is when we think about everyone around us. But all I can tell you is he knows more than us. He, he knows the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. Trust him. You will be with him. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, Revelation said, and then we'll be with him and his son forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are great king and that, Lord, you do not share your greatness or your glory with, with any other but, Lord, that you have sent your Son, and he has done your will, and he has brought you pleasure, and he has pleased you, Lord, in doing the things you've asked of him. And he said everything that he was told to do, he got from you, Father. And he did it all, even to the death of the cross. So thank you, Lord, for your Son, who gave us life, those who you called out from the foundation of the world. And, Lord, thank you for your grace that you, out of your great love and mercy, made us alive unto Christ. You birthed us unto Christ with, with a new creation and a living spirit within us until we can see you again. Lord, bless those here today. Help them, Lord, to be encouraged in you 
to know that they have a king who loves them. Help them share you, Father, to just tell the world about your greatness, to declare your praises, and whether or not, however it turns, Lord, that we know that you're in control and that you are a God of fairness and righteousness. And let us leave you with your pleasure and your mysteries. Let us trust you and and entrust ourselves fully to you and through your Son. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.